0: Today we're walking through the uh, fifth chapter of the confession uh, of God's providence, and we're going to walk through paragraphs three and four today. That's the goal. And in these paragraphs, there is an emphasis on uh, second causes and on theodicy and how God is accomplishing his His work, because there is the difficulty that is there, whether you like to admit it or not, there's a difficulty that is there, and that is that God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. And there are things that have come to pass that are absolutely terrible. And we know what the scriptures say about the Lord. We know about God's character and his goodness. And we also know that he has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. And so connecting these two difficult pieces happens by uh, reading what the scriptures say about God and reading what the scriptures say about how God accomplishes his decree. And one of the ways he does that is through second causes. The, the cause of all thing, things that happen anywhere at any time is by God's decree, God decreeing them to happen. It doesn't mean God made that specific thing happen or God made someone do a specific action. But God in his sovereignty, um, in his providence, even breaking down that word providence, he, he he is giving provision, he is providing. So one man consumes food and uses the energy from that food to glorify God. Another man consumes food and uses the energy from that food to sin against God. And so God is providing a means for both of those men to act, but he's not forcing the men to act as they do. They are they're freely acting. They're acting of their own volition. They are acting based upon what is within their heart, or even the conditions around them as well that can influence their actions, but they're freely acting. God's not making them act. <clears throat> God has ordinary providence that he works through, and he also works through Um, extraordinary providence. So God can act in a special way at certain times because he's God. He has created these rules that exist within nature, and so he is free to act within them or without them. Let's look at paragraph three of chapter five of the fifth, um, uh, paragraph three of chapter five of the confession. It says, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet he is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. Jim Renahan makes this point. He says, We expect that God will bring his purposes in the world to pass through the instrumentation of various means. Here's This is a very famous illustration, and it's, it's probably it's one of the better illustrations that you can find uh, of this in the scriptures. And this is this idea of... Um, first causes and second causes. The gods ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, but he has ordained a particular means whereby those things will come to pass. Let's look at Acts 27 and verses 21 through 26. And this is the time where Paul is imprisoned and he is uh, in a great storm and they are shipwrecked. And look at what is said here in verses 21 to 26. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Men, Paul stood up and said to them, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail for Crete and incurred injury and loss. Yet I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island." So Paul is told by an angel that they will be saved, that God is going to make provision where all of them will be saved. They will not die. That's a promise that is given from God. But look just a few verses later. And you see this in verses 30 through 32 in Acts 27. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. The soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. And he said, if you you let these men go, if you allow these men to leave, then we will all perish. We will all die. And we have this somewhat of a tension that is there. What the tension... God doesn't have attention here, but we have attention with this because we see here that God said that everyone would be saved on the ship. And then we have Paul here saying, if you let these men go and leave the ship, you're going to die. And both of them are true. The means that God is using to save the men is the actions that they will do in not letting these other men leave the other men will be necessary on that ship and we see that they're saved acts 27 and 44 and the rest of the and they and the rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship and so it was they were all brought safely to land it's important to see this that God ordained that they would be saved but the means that he used the second cause that he used to bring about his decree was that these men stayed on the ship, that they followed Paul's command. They followed what he said. So you must understand that if if they had not followed Paul's command, then they would have died. But that's not what God had decreed. God had decreed that they would live, that they would be saved. And one of the means that God used in saving the people on the ship was the fact that some of them stayed on the ship and they followed Paul's command. I think this is important for us as well in considering salvation and, and the means through which people are are saved. People get into a little bit of a conundrum. They say, well, if God is, is sovereign, why even bother sharing the gospel? If God is sovereign, why even bother praying? I'm going to work on some of those questions, but let's look at what the confession says in chapter 14. Um, paragraph one of Saving Faith, the grace of faith whereby the elect are unable to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also by an administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, it is increased and strengthened. So God has appointed that these people would be saved, that they would believe upon Christ, but he has a particular means... Through which he is working. God has ordained the ends as well as the means. He's ordained the ends as well as the means. He's ordained what is going to happen in the way in which it is going to happen. Let's look at a couple of questions from the catechism. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with diligent use of all outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. And here it is, we have that use of outward means pointing back to the confession where the confession talks about these means that God uses in the saving of men. Look at question 93. What are the outward means by which Christ communicates the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. The Lord will accomplish what He has determined to accomplish because He is God. He is a sovereign Lord, Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but there is water on the earth making it bring forth sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so that my word so that my word be that goes out from the mouth it shall not return to me empty but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's sending the word and he has a purpose for which it is being sent. So God is sovereign over All things, God is sovereign even over the salvation of men. God is sovereign over men coming to an understanding of their sinfulness. So, what about praying for the unconverted? Should we pray for the unconverted? Is it appropriate? Should we should we even bother? God's already determined who's going to be saved. I mean, what is the point of praying? That's a question that is asked many times. But you could flip the question around. You could ask the question this way. If God is not sovereign, what is the point of praying? See how that, see how the table is so easily turned. See how that folds over on itself so easy. You would say, if God's already determined, why pray? If God is not sovereign, what is the purpose of praying? What exactly are you praying for? Are you praying that God would not violate someone's free will? Are you praying that God would not disrupt someone's sovereign authority? You don't have to play defense with someone when they seek to undermine the sovereignty of God. You don't have to debate with them back and forth. You can just ask them, what foundation are you standing upon? It's one thing to throw darts at an established doctrine. It's another thing to stand upon one yourself. And I will say that if God is not sovereign, you run into many, many difficulties. Um, You can't just throw darts from midair. You've got to explain. You've got to demonstrate and show the foundation upon which you are standing. Why are you praying to God if he's not Lord? What exactly is he going to do? How many of you perhaps have even had friends Friends that are Armenians, friends that have perhaps debated with you over the topic of, of Calvinism, and you're in a prayer group with that person, and that person has a prayer request, and it's for their lost friend. And you hear them pray for their lost friend. You know how do they pray? They, they pray, "Oh Lord, open their eyes. Oh Lord, give them understanding. Oh Lord, help them to see their sin. Oh Lord, help them to, to believe upon Christ. Give them understanding." Bless them to, to see these things. Lord, you may even pray, Lord, send someone to, to share the gospel with him. And you, you will see them praying these prayers over and over. Because there is a desire for God to act for, for God to work. He's not going to pray, oh God, don't violate his, his free will. No, why share the gospel if God is not sovereign? It would serve no purpose at all, I would argue. Look at chapter 5 in paragraph 3. It says, yet he is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. And we have here the declaration that God is free to work in his ordinary means. God is free to work in the ordinary way in which things work. And then he is also free to, to go against them, to, to work in a way that's not consistent with the way things are naturally ordered. Now sometimes this is an argument that that some will place against Christianity. They will say, look, you are a people that aren't scientific. You're a people that aren't logical. You don't work with math and science. You don't understand that that water doesn't just separate so that people can walk through it like you have in the story of the exodus. People don't just raise from the dead. And the fact is Christians are well aware of that. The writers of scripture were, were well aware of that. That's why they were noted. That's why they were written down. That's why there was, they found it to be significant because this is not how things normally work. And for them to work in a way that is contrary to what is normal was significant. They were well aware people didn't raise from the dead. When they sat around Lazarus's tomb, they didn't just expect him to come back to life. That was something that was extremely rare. Look at Hosea 1 and verse 7. It says, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by, or by horses or by horsemen. God is going to act here in a way that is not consistent with how you would have expected him to normally do it. He's going to work outside of ordinary means. Look at Paul referencing uh, this with, with Sarah and Abraham, uh, Romans four nineteen through 21. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham trusted in the word God of God even though it violated what would normally happen the way things would normally occur people of this age don't normally have children that's why it was miraculous that's why it was significant that's why it required faith on his part to believe God's word and not try to take things into his own hand as he did previously Daniel 3:27 and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Now this is the story of the three Hebrew young men in the book of Daniel. And it was a miraculous action on the part of the Lord. Many people are thrown into fires and they die. People are burned. They were not affected. This was demonstrated to all people. This is how God chose to act. God is free to work in ways that are inconsistent with math, physics, ordinary um, physical laws. He is free to go against these things. He's free to work apart from them. Why? Because they are his laws. This is God's physics. This is God's math. This is God's physical world. He brought this into existence. He created it. He's not bound by it. He's not constrained by what he has created. He's not bound by space. He created space. He's not bound by time. He created time. God is sovereign over even what he creates. God's sovereign even over these physical laws that he has made. There's a time um, in the Bible where the sun stood still for many hours. That's not how things ordinarily work. God sovereignly acted at that time. God put the earth in motion. God put the sun in its place. And God has normally used it in a particular way, but he can work against that if he so chooses. He fed 5,000 people, well, more than 5,000 people, with a handful of fish and a handful of loaves of bread. He brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. And so he is sovereign to make more bread, and make more fish, and have it such that there's even more than there was when they even began. He's God. He made these laws, and he can work with them, or he can work apart from them. He's sovereign, and he's able to do that. These are his laws. Let's look at paragraph four here. We begin to get into this topic of of theodicy. It says, the almighty power, unsearchable in wisdom and infinite goodness of God, so far manifest themselves in his providence, that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall in all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous is neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Well, how do we account for sin within the divine creation? God brought all things into existence and everything is good. That's what it says. God made the world, he said, this is good. God made man, he said, this is very good. If everything came from a good God, then why is There's sin. Did God create sin? God did not create sin. Sin is the absence of what should be. It's a deficiency. It's a movement from the mark. It is a movement away from perfection. Something is good. Something is perfect. It is complete as it is. And to take away from that is the idea of sin. Someone described this as an archery term to go any deviation from the bullseye is is a sin. It is off of the mark. So sin's not something that's created. Sin is the consequence of that which is lacking. But the question is still asked. Well, didn't God have the ability to prevent all sin? Didn't he have the ability to prevent all pain and suffering? Well, yes, he did. The most simple way that could have been solved is not creating Adam and Eve. The second simplest way could have been just annihilating them the first time that they they sinned. The very person asking that question is contributing to the problem himself. The, The person saying, why doesn't God go out there and deal with all of these evil and sinful people and keep all of these evil and sinful people from sinning is the product of a God who did not remove all of the evil and sinful people. This is a man who was born in a lineage of people that were sinful, people whom God did not remove immediately when they had sinned. And such a man is a man who has sinned against God, and one whom God has not immediately removed because he sinned. And yet such a man looks out not at his own sin and the way in which he has broken God's law, looks not at his own deficiency and says, God, why don't you just take my life? But he looks out here at other people that do sins and sins that he, he hates more than the sins that he loves. The sins that he cherishes, he doesn't despise in the same way as these sins of these other people out here. And You begin to have such a person name them off. Well, murderers. Abusers, And they begin to name off their list of whatever the sins might be that that they find to be particularly terrible. And it's these sins that other people are doing that maybe they aren't so culpable of themselves. But the fact is, God is not removing people merely because of their sin. God has a purpose in this. And one of the purposes is, is, most certainly you could say, so that you can come to faith in Christ Jesus. So that you can see your sin and come to faith in Christ Jesus. God has a, a purpose in this. This is very much the subject of the book of Job. Philosophically and theologically walking through this question of why are these things happening to Job? Why did this happen? Is it because Job was so sinful? No, that's dealt with in the book. That's not the reason why. So why did God let this happen? Why did this happen? And they never even knew the conversation that was going on in heaven between Satan and the Lord and the freedom that the Lord gave. That devil that, as Luther says, is God's devil. That devil that can only go so far as the Lord so determines that he can go. And when you come to the end of the book, does Job get an answer? Is Job given an answer to his question, why is this happening? He's just given more questions. He's given more questions that he doesn't have the answer to. We must rest on these things. We must understand that it is appropriate. It is reasonable. It is justified to be angry over sin. It is justified to be be hurt over the pain that others go through. But we must not be a judge over God. We must not be one who would seek to to judge the Lord. Uh, it, it's an area where we can begin to get into a great, great many many messes. Um, here's the other issue that that you walk into. Many times, this argument of theodicy is is put in this this way. It, it is said, well, if God is good, all right, but not powerful and able to remove all of this pain and suffering and evil, then he's not omnipotent. He can't be God. Or on the flip side of that, they will say, well, look, if God is omnipotent and he has the power to end all of this, but yet he's not good in choosing to do it, then he can't be God. But there's a major consequence with that. As soon as you begin to make an argument that there is no God or the existence of evil proves that there is no God, you remove the standards you have whereby you can determine what is good and what is bad. You remove the ultimate standard of goodness, of righteousness that has been eliminated from your, from your toolkit. You can't even use that anymore. So now in removing God, you no longer have a means whereby you can say something is good or is evil, at least not beyond yourself. It's, it, it doesn't go, it's beyond, it only goes to whatever is your preference, whatever you desire, whatever you find to be good. God is sovereign, and God is good, and God has so chosen to operate in the way in which he has, has operated. Um, it's a dangerous, dangerous business to be judging God. Paul is looking at God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, in creation, God's sovereignty and salvation, God's sovereignty even over the salvation of the Jews. And Romans 11, beginning in 32, he says this, For God has co-signed all to disobedience, that, they may have, that he may have mercy on all. Or oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul reflects upon these topics, and Paul um, responds in praise. Paul responds in doxology, in considering God's sovereignty. Let's look at some of these, what you might call difficult passages, but These are classic examples of where we would say first cause, second cause, God decreed something to happen. This is the means through which it happened. God had one intention through this happening, and the person acting in a sinful way had a different intention and purpose. First cause here. Let's look at um, the story where um, David was not trusting God, and he chose uh, to have a census of Israel and not trusting God. God's word. Samuel 24, 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. But we see how that that happened in its second cause, the means through which this took place. First Chronicles 21, 1 and 2, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan. And bring me a report that I may know their number. And David is judged for his actions. Second Kings 19.28, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn your back on the way by which you came. And so God had one purpose in this and it was a, a, a judgment on Israel and David had another purpose on this which was not trusting God, or rather Satan you could even say had a purpose in this that was contrary to God's purpose. The classic example, the classic text that we've looked at before is that of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. That was a sinful action on his part. God decreed they would do that. And God's purpose was sending Joseph into Egypt so that he would save his family and much of the world because he would interpret Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh Pharaoh would would respond by storing up grain for many years so that people could buy the grain and they could live. And another consequence of that is that Pharaoh became extremely wealthy. Egypt became the most powerful country on the entire world, had the most powerful army in the entire world. And one of God's purposes in building them up was to show his power against this, this empire, this Egyptian empire. Joseph's family is there with him and they are apologizing to him. They are um, pleading with him uh, to forgive him. And he responds, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It took many years for Joseph to see that. There's many years he was sitting in prison cells. There's times when he was sitting in prison for things that he didn't do, sitting in prison for righteous actions, for being loyal to his employer. Not even employer, his his slave master. He was he was placed in prison for for being loyal, for being honorable to the Lord but the Lord worked in him during that time. The Lord showed him his purpose. The Lord showed, um, and he's, he's matured him over this time. Let's look at some words from, from Stephen Charnock. He's, he's got some of the best quotes on this topic, so I'm gonna quote from him a few times. Charnock says, If God's providence orders all things in the world and concurs to everything, how will you be free? How will you free God from being the author of sin? To certain God, hath a hand about all sinful actions in the world. The selling of Joseph to the Ishmaelites was an act of the brethren. The sending of him into Egypt was an act of God. Tis said, God moved David to number the people. Yet Satan is said to provoke David to number the people. Satan wills it as sin and God wills it as punishment. Let's look at another example. Um, We have the Lord sending the Assyrians in to judge Israel. Uh, Isaiah 10:6 and 7 Against the godless nation I send him and against the peoples of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder to tread them down like the mire of the streets but he does not so intend and his heart does not think so but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few but then just a few verses later we see the Lord judging the Assyrians because of their arrogant heart and their boastful eyes Isaiah 10:12 When the Lord had finished all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he punished the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Look at that contrast there. He sent the Assyrians in to accomplish his purpose. That was... Uh, the first cause, but he also punished them for their arrogance and for their their haughtiness. And so God decrees certain things to happen, but even the things that are sinful, God will deal with the people that act in their sinful ways. The Assyrians were acting freely. They were acting from within their heart, their volition of the heart desired to go and to act the way in which they did. And the Lord used those sinful actions to bring judgment upon his people. Jim Renahan makes this point. Once more, careful theological expression reminds us that God is not the author or approver of sin. Chapter three and um, paragraph one in the confession. For the sinfulness of their action flows only from their own sinful nature and never from God. God orders actions to fall out according to the nature of second causes. Sinful people do sinful actions. This threat is important and aids us in thinking carefully through the relation between the decree, providence, and the sinful acts of angels and men. The Lord has no part in committing the sin. Though the sinful acts of the angels and men fall within the decree, they flow only from the wicked hearts of those that commit the sins. The Holy God is always righteous. He never winks or approves of sin. And if you really wanna kick against this, you really want to fight against this, what do we do? um with christ and his crucifixion we see the apostle saying this uh, acts two twenty three. this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men this was god's definite plan god's intention was that christ would be crucified but the means that the lord used for the crucif- for the crucifixion of jesus was sinful men taking a hold of him and placing him upon the cross. The Romans and the Jews acting in this. Acts four twenty seven and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see God's sovereign hand working here Through these second causes, through these sinful actions of these men, he's so sovereign, he works even through these sinful actions to accomplish his good purpose. And that's a reminder to us if God can work sovereignly through this act of great injustice to bring about this act of great redemption, who are we to question anything the Lord does? Who are we to act as though we could be God's counselor? Who are we to act as though we could be God's judge? A couple more quotes from Stephen Charnock. He says this, he says, in the most villainous and unrighteous action that was ever done, God is said to have an influence on it. God is said to deliver up Christ, not barely as an act of uh, pretense but his counsel in that determinant, stable and irreversible. He makes a distinction between those two acts. In God, it was an act of counsel. In them, it was an act of wickedness by wicked hands. There was God's counsel about it in actual tradition. Continuing, Sharnak says, in all, God's, in, in all God's acts about sin, there is no stain to God's holiness. In second causes, one in the same action proceeding from diverse causes in respect to one cause may be sinful. In respect to the other, it may be righteous. So look at a few points that he makes. He says, A, God moves everything in his ordinary providence according to their particular natures. The people are acting within the natures of their own heart, the disposition of their own mind, their own desires. B, God doth not infuse lust or excite it, though he doth uh, present the object about which the lust is exercised. Again, this idea that providence he is providing, God provides the fuel that men are using, whereby they have the energy to even do these sinful actions. God provides rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't just rain on the crops of Christians. It rains on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous. God is providing to all people. C, God supports the, the, the faculties wherewith man, a man sinneth and supports a man in the act wherein he sinneth, but concurs not in the sinfulness of that act. D, God's providence is conversant about sin as a punishment, yet in a very righteous manner. And E, God by his providence draws glory to himself and good out of sin. God accomplishes his purpose even through these sinful actions, and he will accomplish, he will bring all things to bear ultimately in the end. A couple more points. He says, God orders the sins of men to the glory of his grace. Secondly, God orders them to bring forth temporal mercies. Thirdly, God orders them for the glory of his justice upon others. And lastly, God therefore in his government doth advance his power in the weakness of his wisdom in the follies, his holiness in the sins, his mercies in unkindness, his justice in unrighteousness of men. Yet God is not defiled with the impurities of men, but rather draws forth a glory to himself as a rose doth a greater beauty and sweetness from the strong smell of garlic scent set near it." Um, we, we must not look at God as though he is a man, as though we can look at God and we can judge God, as though we can, we can know the, the mind of God. This is dealt with in Psalm 50 uh, in particular, where people in their religious actions are worshiping and serving God as though he, he needed them, as though they're bringing him sacrifices, as though he needed, he needed food to eat. Psalm fifty twenty one. these things you have done, but I have kept silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 1 John 2 and 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Even though we may not fully understand how this works, how God uses first and second causes, I'm not sure we will fully understand that all of this this side of glory. Remember the Lord in the entire book of Job did not explain why it is he did what he did. None of us are owed an explanation. None of us are owed an explanation as to why he does what he does. None of us can call him to court. Uh, None of us can uh, subpoena him and, and make him testify before us as to why he does what he does. There's no courtroom that you could bring the Lord to, but we can know what the scriptures say about the Lord and that the scriptures say that these things are not from him. The sin is not from him. He, he's not the one whereby this is happening. He may decree this, but he is not the one who is acting in this way. Um, and just a reminder, uh, James 1, 3 through 15, 13 through 15, is what that should say. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that is a reminder that even one who is tempted—you can't say I'm being tempted by God. It's not not coming from God. God may use even your sinful actions for His glory to accomplish. His good purpose, you will glorify God, each and every one of you will glorify God, either through your sin being placed upon Christ and His grace and mercy being poured out upon you because of what Christ has done, or you will glorify Him by His righteous anger and wrath falling upon you for all eternity because of your sin. God will be glorified in one of the two ways. Dear friends, we must remember it is crucial, it is important to remember that the way in which you glorify God is very important to you in that respect. And it is best for you to turn to Christ while there is time to turn to Christ and trust in him and believe upon him. Turn away from your sin. Grace and mercy are there for you for all who will come to Christ.